All right, so let's have a word of prayer, and then we will begin. Our Father, we call upon you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us, who gave himself for us, that you so loved us that you gave your only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We lift up to you tonight in the name, and we trust for the sake, the honor, and the glory of our Lord Jesus, these brothers and sisters that we have mentioned tonight. We know that you heard the mentioning of their names, and we lift them up to you and ask, Father, if it would please you to intervene on their behalf and to touch their bodies and to recover their, their health. Uh, Father, we treasure our health, we treasure one another and our brothers and sisters in the Lord and pray that you'll make us have a, an appreciation, a daily appreciation for one another, uh, thanking you for the company and the support, the fellowship uh, of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sins, that whether we live or whether we die, we belong to the Lord. We thank you for the hope that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. I ask you to bless us tonight as we seek to study your word and grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. We ask it in his name for his sake. Amen. What is uh, the content of, of saving faith? Content of saving faith. Uh, in the 16th century, they had a big church council, and they said in that church council that you're justified by faith alone. Now, I told you to turn to 1 Corinthians 3, <laughs> so I'm going to tell you to turn to another passage now. We'll look at several passages. You can mark that, and we'll go back to it, but we want to go to uh, the favorite passage of Ephesians 2, or if you don't want to go there, I'll, I'm going to quote it to you anyway, but... Ephesians uh, chapter 2 uh, tells us that we're saved by grace through faith. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that faith is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is not of works. It's not something that every man has. It's a saving faith. The nature of it is a different faith. And, of course, being what we are, fallen creatures, if it was something that we did, then we might boast in it. So you can be sure that God has arranged his salvation in such a way that no one can boast. That if we boast, we have to boast in the Lord. He says that in verse 9, not of works, lest any man should boast. He said, as far as working works, we are his workmanship. Uh, that word workmanship, uh, very interesting how they translated that. Uh, but it comes from another word that has to do with composing poems. We are his poema. We are created in Christ Jesus, watch this now, unto good works. So just because you're not saved by works, 
doesn't mean we're against works. But there are lots of people, lots of people, that think that you have fallen into a works mentality if you talk about something like good works. He says the same man wrote verse 8 as he wrote verse 10. (laughs) And he said in verse 8, you're saved by grace, not by works in verse 9. He says that even the faith, I believe that this verse teaches, that the faith itself and everything that accompanies it is a gift of God. It's a gift. I could go into the issue tonight, but I want into the issue of what comes first. It's a little bit more complicated, but what comes first? Does life come first or does faith come first? Well, you didn't draw a breath until you were first formed in your mother's womb, and you were formed in your mother's womb by the grace of God, and after you were born, then you took a breath. Is that right? So you, you had life before you came out of your mother's womb. You didn't realize that you had life for several years. Most of us, three, four, five, six years old, before we realized that the person we were looking at in the mirror was ourselves. But you had been alive if you spent seven to nine months or six to nine. My mother was prematurely born, so small that uh, her dad could take his ring and slide it up to her knee on her leg, and they didn't think she would live. They packed it with water bottles filled with warm water, and uh, but she lived nearly 70 years, and of course she brought me into the world. The Lord brought me into the world through her. So all of that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But he says, we're saved by grace. We're not saved by works. But God works in us. As we're told in the book of Philippians, he works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So it says here, we are his workmanship. And we are saved. We are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And he goes on to say, God has before ordained that we should enter into the straight gate, be saved, and then go our own way. Is that what your translation says? No, it says that we should walk in them. And walking in them entails a spirit of obedience and a spirit of love for Christ, not a perfect walk, Not a perfect obedience, but you have a desire in your heart that if you fall, you get up again. Solomon tells us in the book of Proverbs, if a righteous man falls seven times, yet he will rise again. So the idea there is that we go on. Why do we know that we go on? Because God is working in us. You see, we may be persevering, But we're persevering because we are preserved. We're preserved by the Lord. So it's really the perseverance of the Lord in us, by us, and through us that we're bragging on, not on our strength, but on Him holding us out so that we can hold out. Okay? All right. Now, he says, in the time past, in verse 11, still in Ephesians 2, 
He said, you didn't walk that way. You who are called the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles, by the circumcision, that's the Jews. He said, you were without Christ, verse 12. He said, you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. That is, you had nothing to do with the God of Israel and his salvation and his glory in serving him. You were strangers. Now, how many times have you read in the Old Testament where the Lord would say to Israel, you ought to do this, that, and the other, but a stranger is not to enter into this. A stranger is not to enter into this. And he would tell the men of Israel, don't marry a strange woman. Strange, that means she acted crazy. It means that she is not, was not a Jewish woman. She was of another nation. She was a Gentile. It's called a strange woman. So he said, you were without Christ. He said, you were aliens. He said, you were strangers from the covenants of promise, all the promises that God made to people. You were strangers to that. And he said, you had no hope in verse 12, no hope, no hope of life, no hope in death, no hope in eternity. And you were without God in the world. Now, I don't know a sadder description of a lost person than that. But he says, but now, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were sometimes far off, now you're made nigh. How close are you? You are as close to God now as Christ is. Christ is as close to God as you can be because he is God. He is the son of God. Nearer to God, oh, nearer I cannot be. In the person of his son, I am as near as he. So he says, you who were far off, you've been made nigh by the blood of Christ. He is our peace. The peace that we have between ourselves and God is the Lord Jesus Christ, who has made both one, the Jews and the Gentiles, having broken down the middle wall of partition between us and all of that. Okay, so you can see how rich this chapter is. So let's go to uh, Corinthians while I ask a couple of questions. What is the nature of saving faith? I say I will deal God willing the next time I teach you. Uh, I didn't know if I'd be here tonight or not. We've been planning a trip for three years. Some of you have been on two or three vacations since we take a break. And this won't be a, a, a vacation, but it'll be a trip that we need to take. So I'm not sure if I'll be here next Tuesday or uh, if Brother Hale will be teaching you maybe next Tuesday. We'll see. We'll see how the Lord works it out. I, I don't want to go anywhere while Lee is as sick as he is, and uh, Shirley too. So we'll just see. All right. So I'm asking... What is the nature of saving faith? What kind of faith puts one into a state of grace? Today, we have a kind of what's called easy believism, which entails what I'm going to talk to you about tonight. I'll tell you the three characteristics, three marks, uh, three constituents of saving faith the next time I teach you. I'm not going to take you that, take, take that night, but that would make you interested maybe to come back and see what the three are. But the, this, this type of faith that's being taught today uh, is a faith that leads into what has been called easy believism, which has led into 
no sanctification, but you get into heaven. In other words, a person just continues to live in sin, continues to live after the flesh, continues to live after the world. There's really no difference between that person and between a lost person, except that person has made a profession of faith. That person has said, I believe in Jesus, okay? Now, when uh, we make a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are saying that we believe on him. We are saying we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We're saying that we are not only believing he's the Son of God, but we are trusting him. We're trusting him. Remember the old story I told you? I don't know about the illustration. So I'll just tell it to you again about the, fire, the guy that was at Niagara Falls. And he stretched the line from the Canadian side to the United States side. And everybody knew what he was going to do. You've seen this, this family that's been on television a lot that walk on tight ropes 100 floors up <laughs> and all that stuff. And so that's what he was going to do. And so he had a big crowd on the United States side and a big crowd on the Canadian side. And he asked them, how many of you believe I can walk across this rope uh, to the other side when Niagara Falls and everybody applauded and he walked across? And then on the other side, he said, how many of you believe I can walk back across? And they all applauded and he walked back across. Then he said, how many of you believe I can walk across with this something like a wheelbarrow? Oh, they said, we know you can. We've seen you do it twice. How many of you believe I can walk across it with the wheelbarrow with somebody in it? Well, I got a little quiet there. But the guy that had applauded the loudest, he said, you get in the wheelbarrow. Now, unless he gets in the wheelbarrow, he doesn't really believe it. He doesn't really believe it. Now, by that same rule, when we say we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we are saying we trust, we're trusting him. We're saying we're, will, we're willing to get in his wheelbarrow. We're saying we're going to trust him. We're saying we want to obey him. Oh, how woefully short we fall. All you have to do is read Romans 7, where Paul said, what I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I do find myself just in a, in a tangent all the time about what I'm going to do and what I can do and what I don't want. But, but listen, that struggle is the normal Christian experience. In other words, if you don't have a desire to want to serve Christ, to want to please Him, to want to walk in the way He wants you to walk, I stand in doubt of your faith. Yes, if a righteous man falls seven times, and he might, he might fall eight times. But he will get back up again if he belongs to Christ. He will not be like the, the, the hog that falls into the mire and gets up, and you clean it up, and what does it do? It goes right back to the mire. He talks about that, and Peter talks about that. He talks about the dog that regurgitates, and you know what he does? <laughs> hate to mention it, and the sow that was washed goes back to the mire. He says there are a lot of people that have made a profession of faith, and he said they go back to what they were. They go back to the very thing that they said they were delivered from. So this is something that we struggle with. We're going to struggle with it. 
all of our lives. That's good. What that does is that makes you desire to be free from all of that sin. You know, Paul said, oh, oh, woeful man that I am in the book of Romans. Oh, sinful man that I am. Ungodly man that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Who shall deliver me from me? He said, I'm, I'm carrying myself around with all of this mess and all this sinful stuff that I have in me and I want to be rid of it. Thanks be to God which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so this attitude, this wrong attitude and this wrong teaching has eventuated or resulted many times in a lifestyle that is foreign to what the Scripture says. We know that if we're saved by grace, we can't be saved by law. And if we're not saved by law, we can't be saved by works, because that's all good works is, doing the works of the law. So to be saved by works is to be saved by law. And we can't be saved that way. But when we come to Christ, when we say we believe on Christ, we come to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. When we don't really trust him, then we are trusting, what are we trusting when we're not trusting him? Well, we're trusting ourselves. That's really what we're doing. We're trusting ourselves. And we become our own boss, and we become our own uh, rule, rather than finding out what the Lord Jesus Christ wants us to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we get into a lifestyle that we call antinomian. A-N-T-I, anti, can mean two things. It can mean against, and it can mean in the stead of. In the stead of or against. The antichrist, that's somebody that comes and is in the stead of Christ. They say that they are a Christ or the Christ. But we're thinking of anti as against. Nomian, M-O-N, N-O-M-I-A-N, nomian, comes from the, the Greek term nomos, which means law. So antinomian means anti-law, or we would translate it lawlessness, living lawlessly, okay? In the place of Christ and what he says, we substitute our own rules and regulations. And how do people get away with this? Well, of course, woefully, many of them really don't know the Lord. Because the Bible tells us that if we just get too far out, what's the Lord going to do if we belong to him? He's going to give you a spanking. He's going to discipline you. He's going to take you out to the woodshed. Obediently? Of course it would. It would. One translation has it this way. You stay in 1 Corinthians. We are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared a long time ago to be our way of life. That's a pretty good translation. So for the purpose here in this study, antinomian, 
not only means those who are under no obligation to any law, but it also means those who are under no obligation to do any good works. And of course, this has led to the idea that one can make a profession of faith in Jesus and they're safe regardless of their lifestyle. You don't save yourself by your lifestyle, but the lifestyle that you have manifests what you are. I mean, I know that a dog is a dog. I don't think I have to wait till it barks to say, okay, I think that's a dog there because it barked. Well, we sin because we're sinners. We don't become sinners when we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. A dog barks because it's a, bo- a, a dog. It doesn't become a dog when it barks. A duck doesn't become a duck when it quacks, but it quacks because that's its nature. So if we have been born again, if we have been made new creatures in Christ Jesus, there's going to be this struggle, this war. John Bunyan wrote a book called The Holy War, and that's what it's about. It's about the war that we have trying to serve the Lord while we're in this world, okay? So what I'm doing is I want to help you to realize that you're not lost if you fall. Like I just quoted to you from Proverbs, a righteous man may fall seven times. You're not lost, but you shouldn't be happy and content. We should always take this thing that put Christ on the cross that we call sin, we should take that seriously. Seriously. We should hate it. We should hate sin and not feel at ease at all. So antinomian, the way I'm going to use it, means not just not under law, but under no obligation whatsoever to live a life of good works. And I say again, that has led to the idea that a person that's made some kind of profession of faith is safe regardless of their lifestyle. 15, 25, 35 years ago, the idea of carnal Christian became a big issue. And it was argued by quite a few people after a while that having made a profession in faith, one is safe and bound for heaven, though, number one, completely dominated by the flesh, all of his or her life. Number two, though having no interest or inclination whatsoever toward obedience. And number three, that one continues in this until death and dies in this shape. Now that's, that's pretty sad. And what that means is that means that that person is trying to use Jesus to get into heaven while living like hell here, to put it bluntly. So here we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I dealt with this when we had this PTI conference, and I thought I would talk to you about it again, but in a part 2 and 3. Brethren, chapter uh, 3, he says, I, brethren, could not speak unto you. I suppose all of you know that the Corinthian church, the church at Corinth, was a church that had lots of problems. So, brethren, he says, I couldn't speak to you 
as spiritual men, but as carnal, even as babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it. Just like you have a baby, and a baby can't eat meat and all that, they have to have baby food. Neither now are you able. You are yet carnal. Verse 3. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not yet carnal and walk as men? One says, well, I'm after Paul, man. And another says, well, I'm with Apollos. Are you, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul? Who is Apollos but ministers by whom you believed even as the Lord gave to every man? I have planted, Apollos watered, but it was God that gave the increase. So then neither is he that planted anything or he that waters anything, but God that gives the increase. Then it says in verse 9, we are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry. You are God's build, building. Now, Paul uses a word. I'll spell it out for you. I'm going to get me a little uh, portable board up here that I can write on. Sarkikos. S-A-R-K-I-O-S. Sarkikos. That's the word that's translated carnal. Carnal. We need not concern ourselves totally with Paul's meaning, but because, let's say, well, Brother Sasser, I don't know any of that Greek stuff. Well, you can determine what he means by carnal by the context. Let me show you how we can do that. Here's what Paul has in mind. Number one, in verse one, he says, those under consideration are babes in Christ. You see that? as babes in Christ. Number two, he says in verse two, he says those babes in Christ need to grow up. He said, I fed you with milk and not with meat because you weren't able to bear it. When he refers to babes, he uses a certain word, and I'm going to share these two words for you. One is brephos, B-R-E-F-O-S, brephos, and the other one is napios, N-E-P-I-O-S. Both of those words are translated babes in the New Testament. Now, brephos, B-R-E-P-H-O-S, is how that's really spelled. I think I abbreviated B-R-E-F-O-S. Brephos is used in Luke chapter 1, verse 41, to refer to the unborn child in the womb of Elizabeth, who was the cousin of Mary. Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus, had a cousin named Elizabeth, and Elizabeth was whose mother? John the Baptist. Okay? Elizabeth was John the Baptist's mother. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 41, Luke uses this term, brephos. In Luke chapter 2, verses 12 and 16, the angelic messenger when he announced the coming Messiah to the shepherds, Luke chapter 2, verse 12 and verse 16, used this same term, brephos, to, uh, uh, to apply to a newborn baby regarding the newborn king. Luke chapter 2, verse 12 and 16. In Acts chapter 7, 
the writer in the book of Acts tells us about how Pharaoh threw the babies into the water. Remember reading that in the book of Exodus? In uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 19, he uses the same word, brephos, okay? But now, the word used here in 1 Corinthians 3 is the word napios, N-E-P-I-O-S, which means a young child that's characterized, quite naturally, by immaturity. It can mean, according to the Greek scholars, one without the power of speech. So it's a young child who really hasn't learned to speak well. Okay? Now, notice verse 3. Paul defines, in verse 3, the carnality that he has in mind. What does he say? He says, there's envying among you. He says, that's carnal, to be envious. He said, there's strife among you. That's the word for contention. He said, that's carnal. He said, there are divisions among you, like a bunch, like a bunch of childish, immature children fighting over a toy. He said, you're carnal. Then he says, in verse 4, he says, you're following men, and you're not following Christ. One of you says, I'm following Paul. Another says, I'm following Apollos. In another, another passage, in, not here, one of them said, I'm, I'm with Jesus. <laughs> like Jesus was uh, uh, equal with Paul and uh, Apollos or anybody else. Now, what he says here is a long, long way from what is usually meant by carnal Christians. A long way, because what is normally meant, as I have spelled out for you earlier this evening, is that one who is living after the flesh continuously with no concern for the commands of Christ, living that lifestyle and dying that way, they go into heaven because they made a profession of faith. They're just going to lose a bunch of rewards and all that. Uh, but they're not going to live on First Avenue in heaven. Okay? That's a long way. What Paul says when he says you're carnal, he says you can't take strong meat, verse 2, feeding you like babies with milk. He said you, you've, you got envy, you're envious of one another. There's strife, uh, divisions among you. He said you're acting like a bunch of childish, immature children. He said, you're following men, verse 4, and not Christ. He doesn't say anything here about you living under and after the power of the flesh. If you want to find out what Paul, Paul's the same guy that wrote Romans. You want to find out what he says, you go over there and read Romans 5 and 6 and 7. And he says right there, if you live after the flesh, he didn't say you're a carnal Christian. He said, you shall die. You will die if you live after the flesh. <clears throat> You'll die eternally. <clears throat> now, other passages in the Bible that Paul wrote flatly contradict the so-called acceptable or accepted carnal Christian interpretation. And we're just going to look at one of them, and that'll be in Romans chapter 6. I just mentioned it to you. You'll just go back about 25 pages. 
or so, and you'll be in Romans, and you can find Romans chapter 6. Okay? In Romans chapter 6, I can't comment a lot on this because believe it or not, our time is slipping away quickly. He says, what shall we say then? Verse 1 of chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That is, look, it took grace to save you. So some of them are saying, you know, if you go ahead and live after the flesh and live in sin, well, it'll take more grace and that'll glorify God. How foolish could you be? What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, he said. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? We're not dead completely to sin, but a death blow has been delivered. We can't be the same that we were uh, that, uh, and, still, and be a new creature in Christ. Go down to verse 6. Verse 6. Our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed. The body of sin doesn't refer to this physical body. It refers to that principle of sin that's in you, that's in your person, not just this body. See, that's another heresy that the body itself is sinful. In uh, uh, 1 John, he wrote that against Gnosticism. 1 John, where he says, we've seen Jesus in the flesh, we felt him, we touched him, we held him, and all that. He's saying, he's saying that for the sake of the Gnostics who said, well, Jesus couldn't have been a real man in the flesh because he would have been a, a sinful, because the flesh is sinful, you see? So he says, no, that's not what he's saying here. He's saying... The old man is crucified. The body of sin is that whole principle within us that leads us to fight against the world or that leads us to fight against what we ought to do. Uh, he says the whole idea of bringing us to Christ and creating us new creatures in Christ is to eventually destroy the, the, the person that we were. So that we will be what? Conformed to the image of Christ. We'll be more like the Lord Jesus. That's what a Christian is. So that henceforth, that henceforth, verse 6, from this point forward, we should not serve sin. Literally, no longer be the slaves of sin. Because what has happened to us spiritually manifests itself through our bodies in the lives that we live. So, verse 12, let not sin therefore reign. Now here, in your mortal body, not your spiritual body. Here in, in verse 12, he speaks about what's controlling, what is the controlling mechanism in you? What's controlling this body? Are you allowing the body of sin, the principle of sin that's within you to control your mortal body? Or are you saying no to that body of sin so that in your mortal body, you're bent towards serving the Lord? So let's read it. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. 
Neither yield ye your mortal body as members, as instruments of unrighteousness under sin, but yield yourselves in your mortal body. So you are in a mortal body. So he says, yield yourself in this mortal body unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your mortal body, yield it and its members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin, verse 14, shall not have dominion over you. You are not under the law, but under grace. He says, if you're under grace, then the law can't have dominion over you. And if the law has dominion over you, it means that you are living disobediently to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was Martin Luther who said, I cannot stop birds from flying over my head, but I can stop them from making a nest on my head. So what he's saying is, I cannot help but fall short of the glory of God while I am in this body of mine, but I am never going to run up the white flag of surrender. I'm not going to say, I surrender and I'm just going to go ahead and let the flesh and the body of sin that's in the flesh have its way in my mortal body. You'll notice that Paul, in this Romans 6 passage, rather than emphasize the bondage of the law, he emphasizes the freeness and the power of grace. He says that the reason sin doesn't have dominion over us is because we are under grace. It is the power of grace through our Lord Jesus Christ, through faith in him. And he is in us, and his Holy Spirit is in us, that assures us of the victory. Okay? So, the Christian is not a lawless person, though he is not under the law of Moses, he is under the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Now the question that I ask, and I, I will quote another couple of passages, but the question that I asked at the beginning was what is the nature of saving faith? And in our next study, I'm going to give you the constituents, three constituents of saving faith, and these constituents were settled centuries ago, but now we're drifting back toward this idea of making a profession of faith in Jesus, living like you please, doing what you want to do, and then going to heaven when you leave this world. This is a strong, strong delusion that is hellish in nature. It's from the devil himself. In heaven, we're going to be serving the Lord. And guess what? We get to practice a little bit here. Now, we fall short. This is what I want to, we've got to have this balance. I don't want you to get into despair. I don't want you to despair. Just because you've sinned or because you've fallen, get up. Ask the Lord to forgive you. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ, according to Hebrews 7.25, let me just make a point or two, and I'll, I'll let you go. 
According to Hebrews 7.25, the Lord Jesus Christ ever lives to make intercession for us. That is, he's praying for us. He's praying for us. He said to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you as wheat, but you just tell the devil to go back to hell where he came from. And no, he said, I have prayed for you. I have, it's his intercession that keeps us. He's prayed for you. I've prayed for you that your faith fail not. That your faith fail not. It is the Lord Jesus dying for us and living for us that enables us to determine to live for him. Though we fall short, though we realize that we can't be saved by what we do and how we live, our hope is in him, but we want to get up and keep on moving to try to glorify him as best we can while we are in this world. Okay? Our Father, we call upon you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your great salvation wherewith you have redeemed us unto yourself. I pray, Father, that you'll help us that we might understand the greatness of this salvation. We read in your word that we shall not escape if we neglect so great a salvation. Strengthen us that we might always be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him despised the shame and has now sat down at your right hand at the throne on high, there to make intercession for us. We ask you to forgive us of our sins. We ask you to cleanse us from unrighteousness. We ask you to fill us with your spirit, empty us of self, and uh, use us for your glory. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for his sake. Amen.